Chapter Two of Bunyip Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Bunyip Land by George Manville Fenn. Chapter Two. How we prepared to start and started. You will have gathered from all this that my father had been missing for pretty well three years, and that he, a well-known botanist, had accepted a commission from a well-known florist in the neighbourhood of London to collect new plants for him. And in his quest, he had made his last unfortunate trip, which had followed one to Carpentaria, to New Guinea. We had heard from him twice. Each time with a package of seeds and plants, which we had forwarded to London, then there was an utter cessation of news. One year had become two, then three, and it would soon be four. Quite a little fellow when he started, I had cried with disappointment at being left behind. Now I had grown into a big fellow for my age. I had dreamed incessantly of making the attempt to find my father, and now at last the time had come. I believe I was quite as excited over the proposed journey as Jimmy, but I did not go about throwing a spear at gum trees. Neither did I climb the tallest eucalyptus to try if I could see New Guinea from the topmost branches. Moreover, I did not show my delight on coming down, certain of having seen this promised land, by picking out a low horizontal branch and hanging from it by my toes. All of these antics Jimmy did do, and many more, besides worrying me every half hour with, "Come long time ago, find him fader." Of course, now. I know that it would have been impossible for me to have carried out my plans without the doctor, who was indefatigable, bringing to bear, as he did, the ripe experience of a man who had been all over the world pretty well before he came to Australia to make a practice, and every day I had from him some useful hint. He was quite as eager as I. But he met all my impatient words with, "Let's do everything necessary first, Joe. Recollect, we are going to a far more savage land than this, and where we can renew nothing but our store of food. Don't let's fail through being too hasty. All in good time." But the time did seem so long, for there was a great deal to do. Jimmy. Who, by the way, really bore some peculiar native name that sounded like Wallagurra, was fitted out with a serviceable sailor's suit, of which he was very proud, and never prouder than when he could see it to its best advantage. This was in the wool barn, where, upon every opportunity, the black used to retreat to relieve himself of the unwanted garb, and hang it up. Against the shingle wall, then he would show his teeth to the gums and squat down 
embrace his knees and gaze at the clothes. When satisfied with the front, he would rise deliberately, go to the wall, turn every article, and have a good look at the other side. When we ran some risks at this time, for our henchman was given his first lessons in the use of a rifle, and for a long time, no matter how the doctor tried, it seemed as if it was impossible for the black to hold the piece in any other direction than pointed straight at one of his friends. By slow degrees, though, he got over it, and wanted lessons in loading and firing more often than his master was prepared to give them. Jimmy had heard the report of a gun hundreds of times, but his experience had never gone so far as holding the piece when it was fired, and when, after being carefully shown how to take aim, he was treated to a blank charge and pulled the trigger. The result was that I threw myself on the ground and shrieked with laughter, while the doctor seated himself upon a stump and held his sides, with the tears rolling down his cheeks. For at the flash and report Jimmy uttered a yell, dropped the rifle, and turned and ran as hard as he could for the barn, never once looking behind him. A couple of minutes were, however, sufficient to let his fear evaporate, and he came back waddy in fist, half shamefaced, half angry, and rubbing his right shoulder the while. Don't do that he cried fiercely. Don't do dat. Play trick, Mass Joe. Play trick, Jimmy. I didn't, I cried laughing. Here, see me. I took the rifle, put in a charge, and fired. There, I said, reloading. Now try again. Jimmy had on only his curtailed trousers, into whose waistband he cautiously stuck the waddy the knob at the end stopping it from falling through, and gingerly taking the rifle once more to show that he was not afraid, he held it loosely against his shoulder and fired again. The gun kicked more than ever, for it was growing foul, and, uttering a yell, Jimmy dashed it down, snatched the waddy from his waistband, and began belabouring the butt of the piece before we could stop him, after which he stood sulkily rubbing his right shoulder and scowling at the inanimate enemy that had given him a couple of blows. One or two more experiments with the piece, however, taught the black its merits and demerits to such an extent that he was never so happy as when he was allowed to shoulder the formidable weapon with which he would have liked to go and fight some native tribe, and his constant demand to me was for me to put in an extra charge so that he might have what he called a big bang. The doctor took care that we should both be well furnished with every necessary in arms, ammunition and camp equipments, such as were light and would go into a small space, he got down from Sydney, too, a quantity of showy electro-gilt jewellery and fancy beads, 
with common knives, pistols, guns, and hatchets for presents, saying to me that a showy present would work our way better with a savage chief than a great deal of fighting, and he proved to be quite right in all he said. Taken altogether, we had an excellent outfit for the journey, my mother eagerly placing funds at the doctor's disposal, and then came the question of how we were to get to the great northern island, for as a rule facilities for touching there were not very great. But somehow this proved to be no difficulty. All that we undertook being easily mastered, every obstacle melting away at the first attack. In fact, the journey to New Guinea was like a walk into a trap, wonderfully easy. The difficulty was how to get out again. Perhaps had I known of the dangers we were to encounter, I might have shrunk from the task. I say might, but I hope I should not. Still, it was better that I was in ignorance when, with the doctor, I set about making inquiries at the harbour, and soon found a captain who was in habit of trading to the island for shells and trepang, which he afterwards took on to Hong Kong. For a fairly liberal consideration, he expressed himself willing to go out of his way and land us where we liked but he shook his head all the same. "'You've cut out your work, youngster,' he said, "'and I doubt whether you're going to sew it together "'so as to make a job. "'I'm going to try, Captain,' I said. "'That's your style,' he said heartily, "'as he gave me a slap on the shoulder. "'That's the word that moves everything. "'My boy, that word, try.' My brains and butter, what a lot Try has done, and will always keep going. Law, it's enough to make a man wish he was lost, and his son coming to look after him. Then you have a son, Captain, I said, looking at him wistfully. Me? Not a bit of it. My wife never had no little ones, for we always buys the boats. They aren't young ships. I married my schooner, my lad. She's my wife. But there, I'm talking away with a tongue like an old woman. Send your traps aboard whenever you like. And there, I like you. You're a good lad, and I'll help you as much as ever I can. Shake hands. It was like a fierce order, and he quite hurt me when he did shake hands. Even the doctor saying it was like putting your fist in a screw wrench. Then we parted, the doctor and I, to complete our preparations. The various things we meant to take were placed on board, and now at last the time had come when we must say goodbye. For the first time in my life I began to think very seriously of money matters. Up to this money had not been an object of much desire with me. A few shillings to send into Sydney for some special object now and then was all I had required, but now I had to think about my mother during my absence, 
and what she would do, and for the first time I learned that there was no need for anxiety on that score, that my father's private income was ample to place us beyond thought for the future. I found, too, that our nearest neighbour had undertaken to watch over my mother's safety, not that there was much occasion for watchfulness, the days gliding by at our place in the most perfect peace, but it was satisfactory to feel that there were friends near at hand. I was saying good-bye at the little farm, but my mother insisted upon accompanying us to Sydney, where I noticed that in spite of her weakness and delicate looks, she was full of energy and excitement, talking to me of my journey, begging me to be prudent and careful, and on no account to expose myself to danger. And tell your father how anxiously I am looking forward to his return, she said to me on the last evening together, words that seemed to give me confidence, for they showed me how thoroughly satisfied she was that we would bring my father back. We were too busy making preparations to the very last for there to be much time for sadness, till the hour when the old skipper came and was shown up to our room. He came stamping and blundering up in a pair of heavy sea boots and began to salute me with a rough shout when he caught sight of my pale, delicate-looking mother, and his whole manner changed. "'Law, I didn't know as there was a lady here,' he said in a husky whisper, and snatching off his battered Panama hat, sticking out a leg behind, and making a bow like a schoolboy. "'I beg your pardon for intruding like mum.' but I only come to say that the schooner's warped out, and that youngster here and Mr. Grant must come aboard first thing in the morning. He sat down after a good deal of persuasion, and partook of refreshment, liquid, and composiously. But when, on leaving, my mother followed him to the door, and I saw her try to make him a present, he shook his head sturdily, no, no, he growled. I asked my price for the trip, and the doctor there paid me like a man. Don't you be afeard for young chap there, while he's aboard my craft. While he's with me, I'll look after him as if he was gold. I don't like boys as a rule, for they're a worrit and want so much kicking before you can make em work. But I've kind of took to youngster there and I'll see him through. Good night. The captain went clumping down the stairs, and we could hear him clearing his throat very loudly down the street. Then the doctor, with great delicacy, rose and left us alone, and I tried to look cheerful as I sat for an hour with my mother before going to bed. Did any of you who tried to look cheerful when you were going to leave home for the first time ever succeed, especially with those wistful, longing eyes watching you so earnestly all the time? I'm not ashamed to say that I did not, and that I almost repented of my decision, 
seeing as I did what pain I was causing. But I knew directly after that it was pain mingled with pleasure, and that I was about to do my duty as a son. Twice over, as I lay half-sleeping, I fancied I saw, or really did see, somebody gliding away from my bedside, and then all at once I found that it was morning, and I got up, had a miserable breakfast, which seemed to choke me, and soon after, how I don't know, for it all seemed very dreamlike, found myself on the wharf with my mother, waiting for the boat that was to take us three travellers to the ship. Jimmy was there, looking rather uncomfortable in his sailor's suit, which was not constructed for the use of a man who always sat down upon his heels. The doctor was there too, quiet and cheerful as could be, and I made an effort to swallow something that troubled me, and which I thought must be somehow connected with my breakfast. But it would not go down, and I could do nothing but gaze hard as through a mist at the little delicate woman who was holding so tightly to my hands. There was a dimness and an unreality about everything. Things seemed to be going on in a way I did not understand, and I quite started at last as somebody seemed to say, Goodbye, and I found myself in the little boat and on the way to the schooner. Then all in the same dim, misty way I found myself aboard, watching the wharf where my mother was standing with a lady friend, both waving their handkerchiefs. Then the wharf seemed to be slowly gliding away and getting more and more distant, and then mixed up with it all came the sound of a bluff captain's voice, shouting orders to the men who were hurrying about the deck. Suddenly I started, for the doctor had laid his hand upon my shoulder. "'We're off, Joe,' he said heartily. "'The campaign has begun. "'Now then, how do you feel for your work?' His words electrified me, and I exclaimed excitedly, "'Ready, doctor, ready. "'We'll find him and bring him back.'" End of chapter 2